while the ushers make their way through the church. If you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke chapter 18. We call these uh, Sundays where there's five Sundays in a month, these, these fifth Sundays a celebration Sunday. But every, every day is a celebration for those in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Even if you don't feel like celebrating, you think on what's true. And there's so much to be thankful for, so much to praise God for. Every day is a celebration if you're a new creation in Christ. And it's all just a foretaste, an appetizer for the great celebration to come when our Lord returns. I'm very excited about what's going on at our church. Just some of these uh, cosmetic changes um, are just an outward picture of what's going on behind the scenes. As beautiful as these things are, to see people repenting, confessing sin, coming to the Lord, marriages being renewed, to see men and women using their gifts in in new ways, for our leadership team, for more men to say, I do want to shepherd the people of God, Uh, a new elder and and more in the wings coming. Um, For my brother Craig to open the word of God to you last week. And Nathan to preach on Easter that Christ would be exalted and no one person would be exalted. This is what God intended. Amen? Amen. It's so, so wonderful to be part of this. And uh, I don't want you to get left behind by sitting on the bench watching it all happen. Uh, go to the Lord. Ask Him, where, where, where could I be uh, stepping out in faith? Where could I be stretched? Who could I witness to in my neighborhood? Where could I serve at the church that would be something new for me? Or maybe um, just looking at the way you already serve in a new light to be rejuvenated and reminded of the important work that you're doing for the Lord. Spring is a time for this, is it not? Of optimism and new beginnings. We've done a lot of celebrating this morning, and there's always the temptation, because we're still fallen people, to think that some of the things that we do for the Lord somehow add to our salvation. And so an important passage this morning, one most of us are familiar with, we call it the rich young ruler. It's found in Luke chapter 18, but it's also found in the other two synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark. And it's um, one of the few stories that appears in all three synoptic Gospels. So let me read to you Luke's version of the account. And we'll use the other two versions during the sermon to kind of fill in the blanks. Luke chapter 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, 
And you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, well, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much as this as many, as many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. These are the words of our Lord. I've titled this sermon, The Man with the Right Question but the Wrong Answer. He, he had a good question, does he not? In fact, if someone came to you and said, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? You would be thrilled. I mean, talk about tee it up. Right there on a tee for you to just... And yet, if you're a student of human nature, you realize that sometimes when people ask a question, they're not actually wanting the answer. They already have an answer. They're just looking for you to affirm the answer they already have. And I believe that was the case with this man who we call the rich young ruler. Certainly we find out he's rich. Luke tells us he's a ruler, but we find out from the other synoptic gospels that he's young. Now let me say a word about that uh, up front quickly. Um, Because the three stories differ a little bit, they vary, there's a temptation in scholarship to try to um, explain the differences between the stories Uh, through something other than that's the way the Holy Spirit inspired them. And so it's common in seminaries to say Mark wrote his gospel first and then Luke and Matthew copied and added parts. Not that they made them up, but they just thought that there was more information to give. And at Country Oaks, our elders... We, we reject this theory. It's called the Markan hypothesis or Markan priority hypothesis. The early church fathers uh, attest that Matthew wrote his gospel first. But there's kind of this evolutionary thinking that everything starts small and then gets bigger, more complicated. So since Mark's the shortest gospel, it was probably first, and then Luke and Matthew elaborated. We would say that all three writers wrote independently of each other. They may have known each other. But certainly Matthew, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who was here for these things, didn't need Mark, who wasn't an apostle, to tell him what happened. And yet, good and godly men and women believe in this theory because it's become very popular in academia, and sometimes when you take a stand that is no longer the popular stand, uh, it's hard to stay in academia. So, we would say that 
the three versions are a little bit different because the Holy Spirit inspired each man to write them that way. And what we should do is harmonize the synoptic gospels. Harmonize them. Use them together to get a fuller picture of what's going on. And so we find out that this man was also young. So we call him the rich young ruler. Now think about this society. To be young and already extremely wealthy. Uh, The other two synoptics say he owned a lot of land. It was difficult to acquire a lot of land at a young age. If you had land in your family, it stayed in your family. And uh, as we know today, there's not a lot of land in Israel and everybody's fighting over it, right? So this man's young, he's a landowner, and he's a ruler. He has a position of authority, some kind of civil magistrate at 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 a young age. Now, I would say if I lived in that culture, I'd want to be this guy. That's, he's arrived. He's, he's that guy that walks into the room and every woman wants to uh, date him and every guy wants to be him. He's got a lot of confidence. He's brimming with self-confidence. I don't think he went to Jesus honestly wanting to know how to inherit eternal life because Jesus would have answered the question differently. If there was humility in this man's heart and an honest, I so badly want to inherit the kingdom of God, but I'm just not worthy, I think Jesus would have given this man a different answer. But Jesus, knowing this man's heart, he is God in human flesh, he's omniscient, he understands the heart better than we understand our own hearts, answers the question in a much different way. So let this instruct our hearts this morning. I don't think most of us are going to hear anything we don't already know. That salvation is by faith, not by works. But in this culture, they had based their salvation on keeping the law of God. And this man believed he was a very good keeper of the law. And he just publicly wanted Jesus to affirm what he already thought about himself. It was almost a rhetorical question. I think that we all have questions of God that we've probably already answered in our own hearts. Which means when you go to the Word of God to get the answers, you'll be tempted to have the Bible answer the question the way you've already answered it. When we cry out to God that He would change us that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would take every thought captive for Christ. But if we're coming to the Word of God and we think we already have all the answers, then who needs to be discipled? Who, who needs Jesus to teach? In fact, you're ready to be His counselor. And we know that's wrong. So let's... let's Be cautious and use this as a cautionary tale here and to instruct us to have the Holy Spirit revealed to us in our hearts where we ask good questions that we already think we have the answer to. So as I said, the man's asked a good question, an important question, maybe the most important question you'll ever ask. 
And he asked the right person. He asked the right person. If there's anyone who knows the answer to this question, it's Jesus Christ. Amen? It's, it's his heaven. He's, all authority has been given to him to judge. But again, I would say that his question reveals that he already determined for himself the correct answer. In one of the other synoptics, he says, what one good thing must I do? Right? Like, what, what would put me over the top? I'm pretty sure I'm in. I mean, if I'm not, nobody is. Just look at my life. Look at my achievements. Look at my accomplishments. Everybody uh, looks up to me. I have the respect of men. Surely, I must have the blessings of God. Look at, look at my wealth at a young age. Look at my position of authority. These things wouldn't happen in my life if I wasn't a good person. But here I've heard of this miracle working man of great wisdom. I think I'll go to him publicly and, and ask him, what one thing must I do? Just to put me over the top. Or whatever he tells me I must do, I've probably already done that. And in fact, that's indeed what happens, is it not? Jesus, discerning the man's heart, asks him a question of his own. That's so great. The whole answering a question with a question. Good teachers do this all the time. We call this Socratic dialogue. Your children probably find it obnoxious. Can I stay out late tonight? I don't know. Do you think you should stay out late tonight? It's not what I asked. Mom, should, Dad, should I get baptized? I don't know. What is baptism? Why do you want to get baptized? What did Jesus say about baptism? What does the Word of God say about baptism? These are questions parents need to ask of their children. They probably are excited that they saw somebody get baptized today, and it's a good thing that they're excited. But if they go home and ask about baptism today, make sure you follow up with some good questions. Encourage them that that's a good thing, but make sure they just aren't excited to be up in front of the whole church and and have everyone applaud for them. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I believe Jesus' question is revealing two things to the rich young ruler. Number one, time out. Why did you call me good? No... Jew from historical documents would call anyone good but God. This adjective was reserved for God and God alone. And certainly you wouldn't call a rabbi good. There's only one good teacher and that is God himself. So I believe he's Stopping this rich young ruler in his tracks and saying, do you realize what you've just said? It's an important question you're asking, but ultimately there's only one person who can answer that question with absolute authority, and that is God alone. Yes, I may be a good teacher in the sense that 
I'm skilled and gifted. But are you calling me good in the sense that I'm God? I believe that's what Jesus is telling this man. Do you recognize me? Do you know to whom you're speaking? Because I do have the authority to answer this question. Secondly, since only God is good, then there is none who is good other than God. Knowing the man's heart that he wanted to get into the kingdom through his good works, Jesus stopping him in his tracks. If there's only one that is good, then why are you attempting to inherit the kingdom by being good? Now, the rich young ruler doesn't catch on. He doesn't pick up on what Jesus is trying to do here. Can you advance the slide for me, please? Thank you. So Jesus exposes the man's legalism by quoting some of the Ten Commandments. Well, you know the commandments. You know the commandments, right? You're trying to earn your way into heaven. You know the commandments. Why are you asking me what good thing you must do? You know what they are. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, oh good, (laughs) I've kept all those from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. Now we know that's not true. We know that's not true. I don't think he's perfectly honored his father and mother. And Jesus has elevated hatred to murder and lust to adultery. By now, he's already taught the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus leaves off uh, coveting, which everybody does quite frequently, whether you admit it or not. Paul talks about this in Romans. He thought he was a pretty righteous dude. Right? In fact, Paul was a lot like the rich young ruler. He, he rose fast in the ranks of Phariseeism. And yet he said, as to the law, blameless until he realized that he couldn't be saved by the law. And he purposely picked out the sin of coveting. He said, like, the law taught me that I covet. So the law is good because it teaches me that I need mercy, that I need grace. Notice Jesus only quoted the second part of the Ten Commandments. He's setting up this young man in love, not as a gotcha tactic. People aren't ready for the good news if they first don't confess that they need good news, that they need a Savior, that they need grace, that they need God's mercy. This, this, this man had it bad. You might look at his life and say, what a blessed life. That's the life I want. And Jesus says, these, these rich people, it's harder to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for these people to get into heaven. They don't think they need mercy. They're not ready for John 3.16 yet. 
Perishing? Why would I perish? Like the Pharisee in the previous parable, remember the parable right before this one? The Pharisee goes up to the temple to pray and he says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people, like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector can't even look up to heaven because he realizes how filthy he is as a sinner. And he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man who went home justified. Apparently, the rich young ruler wasn't there that day when Jesus taught that parable. Or he was there and he didn't listen. And we know that Jesus taught in parables because some people refused to listen. And so he began to hide the truth in parables. If he had been there that day, he would have realized that trying to get himself into heaven like that Pharisee was a fool's errand. He would have known the answer to his own question. Cry out to God for mercy. Beat on your breast and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And don't turn beating on your breast into a formula. Because religion doesn't save. Ritual doesn't save. Taking Lord's Supper this morning doesn't save you. If it did, I would take it every day. Every hour. I would be down there right now. If it made me holier. I would get baptized all the time. And so we must be careful that we don't add works to our salvation. The man beating on his breast, that that was an outward sign of in his heart. He truly was distraught over his sin and had godly remorse and was crying out for mercy. So now Jesus is going to expose this man's idolatry. He said... I don't know, in my mind, it's almost like uh, Columbo. Oh, wait, one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. Yeah, that's good, that's good. Don't murder, don't steal, don't, you know. Oh, wait, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. That's kind of a big one more thing. For a guy who money is his everything, not just because of what he can buy with his money, but the prestige the prestige, everything wrapped up in the world system. If he follows Jesus, he's going to lose it all. He's going to lose it all. And yet Jesus is offering us eternal life, not a better life. He's offering us eternal life, a relationship with him, not add Jesus as like a cherry on top of the rest of your life, which is the good stuff. This is what the rich young ruler just kind of wanted to add salvation to his already perfect life. But he was very sad when he heard this because he was extremely rich. This demonstrates that Jesus knew his heart well. This man was not earnestly seeking the kingdom. God, his God was his money. 
And you cannot have two masters, Jesus said. Because you will serve the one and hate the other. So is Jesus teaching us that we must sell everything and give it to the poor? Obviously no. Obviously no, because then we'd all be destitute, we'd all be poor. Then what? And yet, I want to say this. If God is telling someone this morning that you need to sell everything or something because it has become a stumbling block in your relationship with Him, then I don't want to downgrade the rich young ruler story. Yet at the same time, I know that the social gospel preachers point to this story and say, oh, see, the really righteous people are those who are poor. That's not what this is teaching either. But I would hate for anyone to walk away unchanged after the sermon. God required Abraham to offer Isaac on the altar. That was his most precious possession, his son Isaac. Perhaps if this man, the rich young ruler, had done what Abraham did and said, okay, I'll go sell it because I trust in you and you alone that you will provide for my every need. Then maybe Jesus would said, okay, that's okay. You don't need to sell it all. It was a test. The rich young ruler failed the test, but Abraham passed the test because Abraham's faith in God was such that he said, God has promised to make me a great nation out of the child of promise. So he will either provide a substitute or he'll bring my son back to life. Abraham demonstrating that his faith was squarely planted in God's character and in God's promises. Where are you planting your faith? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Commentator R. Kent Hughes has a suggestion for us. He says, We should give until it hurts. We should invest in the kingdom of God such that it causes us to have to say no to other things that we would normally be able to afford. I think that's good wisdom. And be careful that when you give that money... And say no to things that you could afford. You don't well up with pride. And somehow start adding works to your salvation again. But it's one thing to say I don't have a problem with money. It's another thing to say well put your money where your mouth is. And let's see because God says that we all struggle with this. So I doubt you're the one person on this earth who doesn't struggle with the allure of money. Either you've got a lot of it and you want to hang on to it or you don't have much of it and you want more of it. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? We live in the most affluent country 
in the history of the world. We're all rich people. Compared to the rest of the world, we're, we're rich. Everyone's going to lunch afterwards. Whether you get the food at home or go to the market or stop at a restaurant. We're not wondering when that next meal is coming. So don't turn off your brain and go, well, I don't fit in the category of rich, so I don't need to hear this. If, if our Lord says it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, how hard? It's like that old game show. How hard is it? It's so hard that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, that's impossible. Amen. That's the point. And don't try to te- turn this into, well, I read somewhere on, on Wikipedia that there's a gate in Israel called the Camel Gate. And if the camel will just creep down low enough, it can... No. Because then Jesus would be teaching, you, you, you could just creep into the, to the kingdom with your riches. If you just creep down low enough. If you do the camel limbo, you know, you could get in. No. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration for effect. I can't even get a thread through the eye of a needle. You know, let alone... I don't sew. I, I just, you know, can't do it. Especially in this culture where the theology of the day was that man earns his way to heaven through good works and adherence to the law, and wealth and prestige are proof that God is blessing you for your good works. Therefore, if I'm rich, I'm in. And if you're poor, you're not because of your sin. And so the rich never cry out for mercy from God, and we know that's exactly what we need to do to inherit the kingdom of God. It's exactly what we need to do to inherit the kingdom of God. The more independent we become as Americans and feel like we don't need God, the farther away we are from His mercy. So I've been learning to pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to me to make me dependent on You. Whatever I'm leaning on, take it away. My poor family's going to suffer <laughs> if I don't repent. But if it's a stumbling block, if in any way I feel like I don't need you, show me how much I really need you. The Bible says there's None righteous, no, not one. For by works of the law, no person will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, if nobody's going to get into heaven by their own good works, how do we get in? Jesus is preaching the gospel here. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Impossible for people to inherit the kingdom. Very possible with God who is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. He is ready to save. He gave us the life of His Son to save us. This is the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the righteousness of man. The gospel is all about the righteousness of God. Is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament quote. People got saved the same way in the Old Testament as they did in the New. By faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So Jesus was showing this man that his faith wasn't really in God. And that's where I want to ask you a question this morning. Is your faith really in God? You say, I want to be pleasing to God. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You must believe he is, that he really exists, that he is the God he revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture, and that he is ready to reward those who seek him, to those who cry out to him for mercy. And you say, well, what's the reward? He's the reward. He's the reward. Look, look at the grammar. That he is a reward, rewarder of those who seek him. It doesn't say he, he's a rewarder of those for seeking him. Seeking him is the reward. You get Christ. You get a relationship with God. And so we gather as Christians, we sing these songs, we read the Bible, we confess that I'm saved by faith, but do you really believe God is the reward or do you believe putting my faith in God will get me the reward that I really want? Like, where's my money? Where's my house? Where's my happiness, God? I put my faith in you. Where is it? Where's my reward? He is the reward. He is the reward. Jesus teaches a parable about a man who finds a treasure in a field. And it's the most valuable treasure he's ever seen. And so he runs home and he sells everything so he can go buy that field. So now he owns that treasure. That is what Jesus is. He is the treasure. He's not the person who is the key to getting the treasure. He is the treasure. And until we figure that out, we're always going to be unsatisfied. Peter says, well... Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. (laughs) Wait a minute. We thought there was going to be a reward. You know, I'm going to sit on your right hand when you establish the kingdom. And I'm going to have power and honor and wealth and riches. and... And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much At this time, you get all kinds of brothers and sisters when you come to Jesus. Look at all these. You guys are just like a small portion of my family. Myriads and myriads around the throne. We're going to meet all kinds of brothers and sisters we never knew we had. And in the age to come, eternal life. So I want you to reflect on a couple questions uh, this week. 
Number one, every human being tends to believe they are good by their own merit. And so we know we're saved by faith in this morning. If anyone here is still trying to get into heaven by your works, I hope this sermon has brought you conviction. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for our justification, it's common for us in our sanctification to start to drag good works into our sanctification. If God is saving us by grace, he's going to save us by grace all the way to the end. Amen? Yes, we do good works as the fruit of our salvation and to to say thank you to God and to bring glory to his name, but be careful that your good works aren't a way for you to put confidence in the flesh. Hint, where do you tend to be prideful or feel better than others? Do your good works only happen when other people are watching? Would I prepare a sermon if I never got to preach it because spending time with God and His Word is its own reward? Number two, where do you secretly not trust God that a relationship with Him is the greatest source of joy? Like you say, I know Jesus is my greatest joy. Amen. But then we all go home and look what you spend all your time doing. You spend time and effort doing the things that you think will bring you joy. So what we say out loud may be different than what we believe in our heart. Boy, I I sure spend a lot of effort doing X, Y, and Z, which has nothing to do with the kingdom. Why? Well, I guess because it makes me happy. Well, now we know where you're putting your faith for your happiness. Do you enjoy Studying the Bible, do you enjoy your prayer time? Do you enjoy fellowshipping with God's people? Do you enjoy spreading the good news to others? That's the way faith works. Whatever you truly are putting in your faith in is where you'll put your effort. These are hard questions. They were hard for me to ask of myself. And God's already doing wonderful things in my heart. For being honest about where I fall short. Be honest with God. He loves you. He gave his son for you. He won't reject you. He already knows. He just wants to hear you say it. And then together you can fix those things. Father God, thank you for your great salvation. What a great day it has been. Every day in the Lord is a celebration, Lord. We celebrate you. For you are worthy to be celebrated. We love that we get to be in your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.